views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individual and not of the host. Your radio, Tony, Rodney, Darren, what it is. All that problems, now we got the solutions to handle our ease. Press and stress the problems ahead so we can work it out. Because I've grown up from boys to men, I know I'm shutting my mouth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Married Men Don't Talk show. Download our free Married Men Don't Talk app and consider making a $5 donation to sponsor tonight's episode via PayPal at info at mmdt.org or cash app at Married Men Don't Talk. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are where you are. My name is Rodney and I'll be your host along with my co-host, Tony, I don't think Dan going to be here because tonight is birthday, so happy birthday, D. Phone lines are open right now, but this show is strictly for men only. Tonight's topic is black mental health, and I have an extra special guest with us tonight, my man Lorenzo Lewis. Lorenzo is the founder and CEO of The Confess Project, located at www.theconfessproject.com. So what up, Lorenzo? Hey, what's going on there, brother? I appreciate you for having me tonight. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Welcome to the show, man. We're so honored to have you on tonight. And y'all know how we roll, fellas. So feel free to jump in anytime as Lorenzo and I are talking. So let's get it cracking. So where are you from, Lorenzo? Man, I am um, originated out of Little Rock, Arkansas, man, uh, born in Jersey, you know, never lived on the East Coast, obviously, um, in living years, but born in Jersey, man, but lived my entire life, man, in Arkansas, deep south country Arkansas, man, so, uh, you know, Arkansas, the south is home and southern roots, um, but definitely, man, um, it's, it's embodied, who, you know, who I am today and, and, and obviously the, the impact that I put off in the world, man, so just really grateful to have you, have me here. Um, to talk to the brothers, man, and to, to shed some light on such a very critical but pivotal topic um, that obviously keeps us aligned, man, with with ourselves and man and our emotional well-being. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Good stuff, man. And are you married, single? What's the status these days? Well, I, I got a lady, man. You know, uh, we've been together a while. You know, uh, but now, nah, man, not married at, at the moment, man. <laughs> Okay, no no worries, bro. No worries. And you got any kids? Yeah, I do. I got a daughter. Uh daughter that's uh seven. Uh yeah, man. My my only my only shorty. Um plan on stopping with her, man. Just you know, I, I think I'm in a good place to you know, um at thirty one, man, a call it call it the truth. So I'm I'm in a good place. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, man. So she's in the second grade? 
She's actually in the first grade. Yeah, yeah. The way she um she you know, she started school a little later, so yeah, she's actually in the first grade. Just starting the first grade just recently. Oh, okay. Good stuff, man. I was telling the fellas before the show started. You know, I have a I have a seven year old, and um, also have a seventh grader and eleventh grader. So today was the first school first day of school for us around these parts oh, wow. in, here in in Maryland. So, so how did how did you meet your lady? Man, we've been knowing each other, man, for a lifetime. Actually, man, we met each other as as young people, uh, probably in our uh, I would say late uh, teen years. Uh, knew it throughout college, just friends, nothing major. Um, and then I think, and I obviously in our adult years, man, we you know kept semi contact. Never knew that it was really what it was going to be now. Um, and at this point, I'm saying the only you know, woman I can see myself being with seriously at this point. Uh, but, yeah, man, we just know each other, man, from – I'm trying to really remember. It seemed like we met through uh, – man, believe it or not, I, I, I take that back. We met I, – I, I tried to holler at her, man. I think I was early on. I had to have been right out of high school, maybe uh, a little bit after high school, trying to holler at a stoplight. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was late teenage years. Uh, you know, young brother, man, rolling. You know, I used to be into the big rims and the cars, man. And and that was my thing, man. You know, it was kind of a, you know dirty south thing. You know, we rolled big rims here in the south, man. I remember pulling up and and, and trying to holler, and then I, I I followed her where she was going, and I stopped. And I was like, man, I don't want to get hurt trying to go too deep in this neighborhood. I, <laughs> So uh, yeah. end up, somehow we ended up bumping back into each other, man. So I had to have been, I don't know, I guess 17. We may not have been that young. It's, it's been a while. So I've been knowing her uh, 16, 17, maybe a little after that, somewhere up in there. Yeah, so it's been a while, though. But, yeah, young brother, man, just running wild, man. But whoever knew that years later I would end up um, really taking it serious and trying to take it to another level. <clears throat> That's good stuff, man. And please tell us that you still have a nice ride with some nice rims on it. No, I don't, man. <laughs> I had to let all that go. No, man, no, no, but I uh, definitely let it go, man. It was, you know, I, I spent years, man, putting my money in material stuff, man, and you know, it, you know, I, um, you know, it got pretty rough around here, man. You know, Little Rock is Arkansas is really keen to. Um, I think everybody's really keen to violence and different community things, but. You know, in our culture here in the South, um, it's just really rough, man. You know, and I think at around the time when I got out of it, I was going through college, and I was still trying to live a double life of going to school and still kind of, you know, in between the streets and the dudes I grew up with. Um, and just like, yeah, it was time for me to let it go, man. And my daughter was probably about two, I think, at that time. So she was, you know, it, it was just best that I got out of that life, man, because it was you know, um, had a couple of homeboys that, that didn't make it, you know, that was a part of it, you know, it, it, I would tell people, man, it was a, a fine line between trying to get it together and still trying to, you know, be mixed in that old identity. And I think we're going to even dive deeper into our identity. We talk about black men's mental health. It's really a, a home piece of our identity that's, that that underlines, and you know, our emotional well-being and our emotional wellness. And also when our identity becomes much more of a problem, how it causes emotional distress. Um, so I could talk about mm-hmm. those archetypes later, but yeah, man, definitely that's that's how I was rolling. But I'm in a better place, man. Yeah, no doubt. Good stuff, man. And that was a nice segue because that was really my next question. You know, after we get the 
generalities, you know, out of the way. But um, so tell tell our listeners, man, and tell the fam, you know, on the show here tonight, what exactly is the what's the Confess Project all about? Right, man. I always say, you know, I started building the Confess Project, man, from my aunt's kitchen table uh, years ago, man. I had left my job, um, you know, searching for a light. Um, searching for a purpose, man. Uh, I worked there over a decade in mental health, and I just got my master's degree. At the time, I was dating this other chick. She had been doing a lot of amazing work in um, nonprofit, man. So, you know, rather my ex, but now a friend, and was um, really inspired me to really think about my experience that I had personally, um, and also how my experience personally could uh, really intertwine with my professional experiences. Um, so understanding that was really uh, when the Confess Project was born, man. And like I can tell, I, I built it from nothing, grassroots. It was, um, you know, really a combination of my depression, anxiety, my identity as a young black man here in the South. Uh, but the Confess Project ultimately is this national grassroots movement that's geared around building a culture of mental health for men of color, young men of color. Um, and our idea is that we will transform our school systems, institutions, uh, to um, to be uh, more equitable, but also to have the support and be and culturally support young men of color so that they can have better life outcomes. Um, and we realize that our emotional health is a part of our overall life outcomes, life, school, and career, and um, that we must think about how we transform our systems and schools and institutions. So part of our work, we train barbers, we train school professionals, mental health professionals, law enforcement Frontline support professionals that work with young men of color. Uh, we don't. We don't. We're not a mentoring program. We're more or less a capacity building, a training organization that is focused on building a culture. So uh, we realize the people that come in contact with young men of color, we must make sure that they're equipped so that they can help um, expand and, and push the life trajectory of young men, so that they can be healthy community leaders, um, so they can be robust individuals in our community, um, and to have more fathers in the home, right, and have more fathers that are healthy. And also to have more pleasant husbands and more better men to their children. Um, so I think ultimately that's how all of our work ties into how do we build a culture and have sustainable people and men, sustainable men, to show up in their families and across communities. Wow, you just sound like you read our mission statement. <laughs> you know, honestly, especially about the you know about the you know just being better husbands and fathers. Uh, fellas, y'all got anything uh, for Lorenzo? I don't want to hold the mic here. Y'all got any any questions for him? Um, I just wanted to ask real quick. You know, you say you got a master's degree in mental health. What is your degree specifically in? No, actually, my master's degree is um, in public administration. I got an undergraduate. Um, okay. In human services. So yeah, yeah, I, I do not identify as a clinician, but obviously my role um, that intersects with mental health is being an advocate. I worked in behavioral health for a decade. I've probably worked. I've worked with the most severely mental ill from the ages of five to sixty-five, um, and done a lot of case management, a lot of intensive um, inpatient, outpatient care. Uh, so I've devoted my life to uh, working with people with mental illnesses and providing their care and their support, and direct support, professional support. But in addition to that, uh, becoming an advocate allowed me just to educate communities, um, to inform communities, but also to build momentum and organizing communities. Um, it's the work that's really the gap. It's 2% of black men identify as psychiatrists in the U.S. So we realize that if we know if it's 2% of black men identify in the U.S., 
the issues among racism and the lack of mental health workers. We have to have advocates. So that's a lot of our work while we train barbers. The reason why we're going in training college students, we're training law enforcement, uh, because we, we are the change that we want to be. And we're not going to increase that 2% so drastically. So we got to give the people on the ground, such as myself and others, to, to, to be able to take that light and be able to spread the, the good word and the good message. Mm-hmm. Hey, Lorenzo, I had a question. Um, hearing what you're saying about your organization, uh, how do you all address, you know, the the concept of the angry black man um, from both ends, from people on the outside and then from the young men that you work with to uh, not portray that? Mm, that's a good one, good one. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is um, really have to think about the – societal concept of how we're perceived as men um, and how the societal concept perceived of as men as being that we uh, must only hone the feelings of being angry and being enraged, but also the dispelling that myth that that's not true. I believe the biggest part is that we have to do that inner work. When I mean that inner work, we have to do that inner work with young men. We have to do that inner work with families and communities and across systems so that they understand that this is not the true black male and this is not how we just only show up. So it's really also dispelling that negative myth, but also building up that healthy masculinity that we have, that we can't, we can't possess. So that that's being able to be translated across several lines. In addition to that, being able to build up men and understanding that, um, that we don't have to, obviously when we um, are portrayed that way, um, that we must be very careful about how we see ourselves and also how we see ourselves is how we should be able to push that amongst our young people, our young men, our, our babies, the people that we love and we care about. Um, because we also, we hold that, um, we're, we're, we're in control of that narrative, right? So a lot of it is yeah. doing that deep narrative work and uh, really dispelling those mills while doing that. Um, I believe while doing just that simple um, approach, I believe you at least start the conversation. There's much more work to be done there. But I believe it's really like doing that narrative building work and really honing it in because I think it's so many young men, obviously, so many men particularly, that feel like we can only show up in rage and anger, right? And that's not totally mm-hmm. true. We can be vulnerable. We can be, you know, uh, we can be healthy. We can also be uh, caring and it's okay to, to feel, right? And we know it's okay to feel. I think we really have to be transparent and let men know that while doing this, that we have to also um, be in, in a congruent way of, of raising our, our shorties and the people that, that are around us to understand that that's okay too. So, mm-hmm. and from your experiences, you know, from uh, from experiences uh, scholarly and from life, uh, what do you say to fathers, uh, especially black fathers, when it comes to uh, physical punishment, you know, and walking that thin line of abuse and physical punishment? What do you have to say, you know, speaking on that? Yeah, yeah, I believe the biggest piece of that is, um, you know, someone as myself is always practicing the, uh, I believe, more of a, a, a lesser approach of, of you know, I, I grew up getting whoopings, right? So I'm just being for me. I know I grew up getting whoopings. I grew up oh, yeah. uh, getting towed up, right? So mm. um, understanding <laughs> that we, we young I think men, we all we, did. We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we really have to think about I'm, I'm going to dive really deep and I'm going to come back up where you said I want us to think about it's a it's a, a acronym I call ACEs Adverse Childhood Experiences Adverse Childhood Experiences yeah. are um, a culmination 
of different triggers and different experiences that have happened in a lifetime. Uh, ACES combines of a score, and the high score is a 10. You're zero mm-hmm. out of 10, and each point can be symbolized as you've gotten a whooping, uh, lost a parent, a parent being incarcerated, being sexually abused, being verbally abused, uh, watching someone die. These are a combination of those scores that build up for an individual. And when you have a high ACEs score, you are now more intact for a health condition, heart conditions, more cardiovascular issues, obesity, several different things that can come across um, as a different, as a public health concern, as a health concern to yourself. Uh, what happens is in ACEs, because so many people are uninformed with ACEs, we traumatized when we're traumatized we re-traumatize right so when we don't mm-hmm. unpack from a lot of that hurt and that, that that brokenness we we do that process over again and while doing mm-hmm. that we end up really affecting the issue more deeper and that's why i tell a lot of people um you really have to be careful when doing the work with people like we do work with barbers but I would tell mm-hmm. people we don't do that real inner work with barbers especially if these guys have come out the pen they cutting hair we had to be real critical about making sure they're doing their self work through taking them through education and different, you know, activities and making sure that they're healthily sound to do this work when dealing with the public because you now you have broken people working with broken people. Right. So mm-hmm. I believe really that fine line of that aggression, you have to really know where you sit uh, emotionally. And if you're not emotionally intact, if you're not in self awareness, if you're not doing that self, that deep work for yourself, you will, uh, you obviously will be aggressive, and that punishment stream will be a lot more higher uh, because you mm-hmm. won't be able to even understand your own trauma, right? Sorry. So you really have to do that that inner that inner work for you first. Like for me personally, I know that I lost my mom and dad before I was 21. Um, I knew that that had me in anger, rage. I battled with grief. I didn't understand that grief showed up as depression. I didn't know that grief could show up as me having bad relationships with women, having bad relationships with, with my child's mother, and et cetera. Well, when I started to go to therapy and unpack that, I had a healthy relationship not only with women. I could treat my woman better. I had a better relationship with my, my aunt, you know what I mean, with other women. You know, so it, 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 it increasingly improved based on because I did that self-work in therapy for almost, you know, six, seven months, right? You know, so it's just kind of like that really helps tweak that process of that punishment piece, too. Um, we'd be a lot more, you know, a little bit more understanding of that trauma and, and how we can address that for ourselves before we – you know, actually start to deal with somebody else in that. I hope that mm-hmm. makes sense to you. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. You said you said you know covered uh, quite a few bases with you know everything you said. So yeah. And I think the biggest thing sometimes we just got to go down and come back up because I think it's not a straight issue, right? It's not a, just an up and down. We have to really talk about you know what is you know a lot of people say well, you know mental illness is this, or man, mental health is this, but like. Man, like, how is your course set up? What is your what is your course set? What is, how is your foundation set up for you? And then let's talk about mental health from there. Like, like, how were you mm-hmm. raised? Like, how did you how were you treated? Were you loved? Did somebody hug you? Did you have affection? Did were you told you were ugly your whole life? And now you're a man, you're an adult, you're a woman, and you feel unworthy. Well, it's, we got a problem because we got to address some of those childhood things first, right? We got to get real deep and understand why didn't you feel love? Why did you feel unworthy? And now you're a 40 year old person and you still feel like somebody owes you some or you don't feel like you can get along with others. And that's a deeper problem because it's like, man, you know, this is something that you never was able to hear from as a kid. 
You know, so now you get older, you're just reaffecting that problem. You know what I mean? So I hope that I think that's the way I go at it. Um, you know, same way with leaders, right? When we got leaders in the field that's doing this broadening work, um, I don't care how good of a leader you are, man, you're not a good leader until you do this brokenness work on you and fix that. Right? So I oh, think yeah. that's yeah, yeah, you know, we'll have to assess that too, you know. Good words, Lorenzo. Anybody else? Got anything? Um, what is your you mentioned um young men of color. What would you say is your targeted uh demographic, Lorenzo? What what age uh specifically are you looking for? Uh, yeah, eleven to thirty five. Uh it's some research, mm-hmm. man, very powerful research that we I gauge um is lady out of Michigan State, Dr. Daphne Watkins, man, has done amazing research around the spectrum of boyhood to manhood and how it plays on as a uh, the juvenile young man in that age of 11 coming to young adult, coming to manhood. There's so many layers there that young men chemically, um, not chemically, but environmentally and socially, you know, have to conform to what identity of growing up, being a young man, you know, especially if they grew up without a father, absentee father, being a single, you know, single parent home, um, all the way, just even understanding um, the different societal, you know, pieces that come along with being the protector, being the, the provider, you know, being that person to have to show up, you know, um, economically in the household. All of those things with young men, sometimes they never tend to really get, um, really, I'll tell you, they never really get a break, right? So it's like we're continuing to climb that ladder socially, and then emotionally, we never really get to assess the situation on. Man, I just, you know, I never was really given some time to really just, you know, work myself through this process. So now I'm kind of stuck now at this 25-year-old age, and I got all this kind of, you know, because uh, I, I, cause daddy wasn't around, and I was the only young brother at the house that had to take care of home, you know, never was really kind of given some of that um, emotional break in between of really growing. So, you, you know, it just ended up becoming a more of a packed issue, uh, layered problem on top of that. So that's... Our work is really keen around that age because it's a lot of, you know, you think about puberty, you think about, um, you know, entering high school. It's a lot of layers there, I believe, through the ladder of age, the age ladder that really infers into the emotional health of, of young men in general. Mm-hmm. Was your organization uh, faith-based? Not necessarily. I, you know, I'm a, a man of faith myself, but no, we're not a faith-based nonprofit. Um, the Confess Project, I know the name. I tell people that the name originated out of, um, that to this day, I, I couldn't vividly give you the, the direct scripture because I, the Confessions is mentioned quite, you know, quite frequently throughout the Bible. Uh, but no, it's not directly a faith-based organization, uh, but I, obviously I'm a man of faith myself, so I think that's truly important for the work that we do, um, but not directly in the faith community. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's eerily similar because it's like a slide, you know, like, you know, like we're not problem. We're not directly faith based. And I talked to Lorenzo about this before the show, but it's like, you know, backdoor, you know, type. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that, you know, the ages of your demographic is is probably literally our demographic probably starts right at 35. You know, we don't do too much with young men. You know, we're. You know, primarily our audience are between that 35 and 
I don't know, 55, you know, somewhere in that sweet spot in that range. But um, mm-hmm. that's who, I guess, the men that, that, that are attracted to what we do. So I think it's interesting that you, you know, you picking them up at 11, you know, taking them at 35, and then they can, you know, link up with us to get even some more, you know, training. But, you know, just like we talked before the show, man, it's just, you know, what y'all are doing is um, – is eerily similar to what we're doing, and I want to, you know, unpack it because we only got, man, look at the time. We only got about uh, 35 minutes, you know, before right. we have to let you go. But <laughs> you see the time goes, man. So um, it does. What year did you start um, Confess Project? I don't think you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Confess Project was started 2016, uh, May of 2016. So we're going on year four. Uh, we're still in the early running of, um, you know, of, of building our infrastructure and continuing to make our blueprint. We're, I think we're at an early state, but we're doing, um, you know, trying to stay consistent. But, yeah, man, still early organization, um, addressing such a critical and a large need. Um, and I just got to honor people like, um, you know, uh, Kevin Dedner, the work that he's doing with Henry Hill. Um, this work cannot be done alone, you know. Um, it's going to take many people, even the work that you all do across you know, across media and the work that you all are doing across it. For men, it's vitally important that our work intersects with you all, too. So, yeah, but very young organization, but obviously doing extraordinary work and very much needed work. Yeah, no doubt. I appreciate the mashup. And uh, you speak of Kevin and uh, Henry Hill. They'll be on here in 35 minutes, you know, representing. So, <laughs> um, you know, you're welcome to stay on if you'd like. But tell us okay, about cool. your um your your very first speaking engagement. Okay, okay, man, my very first engagement, you know, honestly, is documented, I believe, in bio uh, that it was at a church, <laughs> and it um uh, it was technically uh, I went to a um it was a convocation that we held before my graduation. Uh, my first time, I went to a small black HBCU Christian college called Arkansas Baptist College in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, my first speaking engagement was um, giving the token of honor to the to the speaker, the actual speaker of the hour. But it was our, um, I don't know if I pronounced it right, it was our baccalaureate service ceremony we had that uh, preceded our actual graduation ceremony. And um, so I gave that speech, and it was my first time, obviously, ever just giving a speaking engagement. But it was actually in the church, you know, smaller setting, about, about two, three hundred people. Um, and, and that's where it was really ignited. You know, I remember telling my professor I actually finished undergraduate a little earlier more than my peers. And I came back and before I, when I walked and I was like, I really want to speak. You know, and she was like, yeah, I got got an opportunity for this. I got to speak, you know, a part of my graduation ceremony. So I was after that, man, I just it just it was really an internal spark. And this work was born after that. And, um, yeah, here we go. We're still in it, you know. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, well, ten o'clock, time for a monkey wrench. Um and I, I got one for you. And the question is this, Lorenzo, are people really interested in what the black man has to say? Or do you find that after, you know, just looking at the numbers, social media traffic, whatever, you know, that people just say they're interested in what black men have to say, but the analytics actually indicate that they really don't believe that. Um, what, what do you think about that? Do you think people are really interested in what Lorenzo has to say and, and his movement, <laughs> or they just kind of? <laughs> <laughs> no, you were laughing, you right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, man. Um, I'm going to answer it the best way I can without going too deep. Um, you know, I want to reference Kevin Denner on this one. Kevin Denner said something very powerful about three months ago. If he's not listening, you can reference this back. But he said, okay. man, the world can care less about black men in general. And I was telling Kevin, we had a conversation. I was like, man, this work is difficult, man. It's, you know, we get the challenges and the business structure, da, 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 just having this kind of back and forth. And we kind of bouncing things off. Kevin's a really good guy. We kind of bounce a lot of things off. And he said, man, I'm going to be honest. The world can care less about black men like that. That's the, the black men is not attractive to the world. <laughs> so mm. the work that we're doing is truly not sexy. And I was like, man, when he said that, just really, ooh, that did something. But he, I, I, I got to be frank. I think he's right. And I'm not degrading black men, but I think as from a worldly, you know, man, the way they, they you know, they, they, they put us in a snapshot, right? It's, 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 it's pretty, you know, it makes you, you know what I mean? Like, then you know, just think about the bias that, that's there and a lot of the, you know, it's just so many things, you know, the trauma and the community, it's just it's so many intersects with that. But um, ultimately, yes, I feel like we, truly are the light and divine we are uh we have so much more to give i believe that we're truly fighting uh a lot of the systemic issues that come along with being a black man uh but i believe we have so much more to offer and that's why i made my mission specifically about you know african-american males because i know that we're vitally important to um really giving so much more in our communities than what they say we can i only bring up what kevin says because I believe also to some strong degree that that is true, right? You know, across the country, you know, you really, we're not, uh, we're not looked at as just, you know, we're, this is all, man, I run an organization around black men. That's not sexy, right, to, to the community. You know what I mean? Like, that's really not, I mean, it's a lot of people I can only imagine. I can tell you now, I travel the country, state after state. I get a lot of people, you know, even black people, like, man, dealing with black men, like, boy, you, you know, <laughs> that's a big deal. You know what I mean? Like, it's, you know, you're yeah. addressing the, the, the two-ton elephant in the room, you know. So I got to say from my personal experience, what I get back, and even when I first started my work, I felt like, man, you know, it was, it was a part of me was like, man, I wonder how people going to really feel about this. Because I know when you're talking about black men, it's, it's, it's a, man, that's a big, it's a lot, it's a lot to unpack there, man. So, yes, mm-hmm. to answer your question, yes, definitely need it. Um, we are, you know, we can offer so much more, and that's why I'm really pivotal in bringing so much light to what we do, and saying that we can have emotionally healthy, intelligent black men. But unfortunately, I believe the world that we're in does not see it that way, man. You know, I'm just gonna be real frank about it. So, uh, but hey, that's why I do what I do, right? Because eventually it'll work out. <laughs> you know. What I mean? Yeah, no uh, doubt, no doubt. And I mean, do do you think that people are more interested in what celebrity? black men have to say versus the Lorenzo Lewis's of the world? Because, I mean, you look at LeBron's, uh, the shop, you know, the barbershop um, yep. little thing that he does. And, oh, it's, you know, you read the write-ups. Oh, it's critically acclaimed. It's unscripted. I mean, this is the great. I'm like, bruh, like we've, we've been doing this for over a decade. And, you know, <laughs> what you know you, you just did, you just started in 2016. Like, we started in 20, 2009. Like we've been in the oh, game wow. for a minute. Yeah, I've been in it so, for a while. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so uh, 
I I think that you know strap in uh, because, like you said, I mean it, it's it's not sexy and you know it's just something that um, it's a need. You know we definitely don't disagree with that. However, you know we find that the masses, um, you know, literally LeBron James puts out a subpar product compared to ours, and I don't. I don't mince words because I, I put it to the test on Twitter when the show first came out, you know, with his little followers and everything. He got much more than we do. But the reality was that, hands down, our content was better. But, again, we're Rodney and Lorenzo Lewis of the world, and nobody really cares what we say per se. You know, they're like, LeBron said this, or Jay-Z, you know, had his little notes. Uh, what was it? Notes from 444. What was it? Little thing he did. We had Chris Rock in there. They were sitting around talking, and people were like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, so. But, you know, I mean, do you, do you, do you find that, you know, if it's, do you have any celebrity, you know, uh, emphasis, or have you had any celebrities? you know, get involved with the Confess Project? And, and if so, have you seen that, you know, help, you know, elevate your movement? Um, yes and no. So I've, you know, we've had some, and I think desirably we would like to see more, uh, a lot more feedback, I would say, from, you know, the black celebrity world. I think, with this, I think I, honestly, we, I think I, I've just had a critically vain about really, um, doing our work honest and just allowing that to interface for who it's supposed to be for. Uh, mm. And, and I, I think the other part of that is, you know, we have to, somehow we end up having to figure out a way to beef up our conferences and our work to make people even pay attention to it. But then we lose while we're really doing the work while doing that, because now we're dealing with people that really may not even, you know, give a damn anyway. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think that's really something you have to be really keen about, um, is really knowing why why are we even doing this in the first place? You know, are we really in it for dealing with people that have status, or are we really trying to help people? So now we got a lot of people in the deep end that's drowning while we're trying to chase people that may not even really care. You know, so I think mm-hmm. we really have to imagine we have to measure that part. Uh, the other part of that is um, we've had, like I said, have very less in a probably more. I mean, I'm really thankful for the media. We've gotten a lot of media last three years kind of fired up a storm with media, local, national, international. Um, so, yeah, definitely I believe our message, our footprint is out. Um, you know, probably could use some more endorsements maybe from black celebrities. You know, I, I think the thing is if we're going to get endorsed by black celebrities, uh, I would hope that they really care or that they're somebody who's really fighting the stigma, right, somebody who really cares to see that their communities and more emotional wellness and better support it. I don't, I don't really would like to go after folks that really could care less if they still treating their bodies wrong, if they really don't care about their mind, they still doing, you know, indulging in crazy activities. Um, you know, that's, that's something that we wouldn't really, I wouldn't as a, as someone as an overseer would want to be a part of that, regardless of who that person may be. But to answer your question, yes, um, I definitely believe the credibility we've had to find ourselves putting our work in higher credibility. Um, but by putting people that are, you know, have status, which I think a lot of times is just not, you, you lose the, you really lose the, um, the good part of your work when you do that. So, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. 
All right, good stuff. Um, anybody got anything for uh, Lorenzo? Cause I, I, I mean, you you got um, you got sponsors, don't you? I mean, you, you, I mean, was it easy attracting sponsors for your movement? Uh, because of the network, fairly easy, you know. Um, uh, and fairly easy. We're still you know, working that out, you know. Uh, we we still got a long way to go, man. You know, we're still um, we got a long way to go, you know. And I think, but for the most part, we. We got a decent amount, you know, being very grateful for having some private donors and different investors that come in and really keep things moving. But um I think in the near future we'll be we'll be in a pretty um financially healthy position than what we are now. Um but yeah, we're definitely still mm-hmm. um still still trying to get there. But yeah, to to answer that we have worked with a few foundations, yes, obviously we receive funding from different sources, um, but as we continue to be more sustainable as the work that we're still, we got a long way to go. So I think we're just um, continuing to, to grow what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. That's great stuff. We have um, one consistent sponsor, and uh, it's this lady who just loves what we do. And um, but that's about it. So you way you way ahead of us, brother. Um, <laughs> I got another monkey wrench. I got another monkey wrench. Um, and when it comes to mental health. Are black men actually interested in the topic for themselves, or are black men interested in this topic simply because a lot of black women are interested in the topic? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm going to tell you something, man. Um, black men are, may not be as interested as they should be until something happens in their household uh, <laughs> or mm. something happens near near them that affects them. Um, so a lot of times in my presentation, obviously in my speaking and our ability to really dig deep, um, I'm really digging at what what is it about you that you may be struggling with or you're dealing with that you don't like about yourself and then tying that into your emotional health because obviously a lot of this, again, the way we feel, act, and the way that we show up plays a major part in our mental health. People, For some reason, people totally separate your mental health from your daily emotional energy, conserving with people, communication, like they somehow they separate and that's totally not what it is. You gotta think about the way that we the energy, where we live, who we talk to, who we date, that is a part of our emotional and mental health. And we so I think we I have to go at it a little differently. But yes, to answer that, a lot of black men um are not as keen to that until it has happened to them or it has started to impede their relationship. Maybe it's impeding their sex life or it's impeding their relationship with you know, a close friend or a family member, and it's really gotten into the way, and they start to really realize it's a problem here. Um, but then there's a lot of black men that do care, you know. But, um, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I think it depends on where that black man is at in his life. If it's a young brother mm. that's straight out of college and, you know, he may, you know, um, you know, ain't really hit no major life circumstances versus having this 42-year-old brother who then went through a couple of women in a second marriage and went through a divorce and, you know, paying a lot of child support and trying to keep up with his bills, his brother may be a little more inclined to want to have that conversation because he may have really experienced life. And by this point, he's looking for tools. So it depends on where people Mm. are in their life. Um, One way I do know um, with young people, you really have to tie in the social capital popularity. You have to talk about who they, how they interface with their friends and really kind of dig deep on why they why this is important for them, right? So, you know, that's a lot of the bullying and a lot of the relationships, social media, you know what I mean? So you have to go at them a little differently. 
um, talking about men, it depends on where that man is at, you know, and I think that's 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 how I would answer that. So. Mm-hmm. That's good words. And speaking of interest for black men and, um, you know, black women, I, I was listening to a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago by my homegirls that go by the name of Fab Wives. Shout out to Fab Wives. They're based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and their movement is so dope. Um, their okay. platform is, is simply to help black women be more intentional about being the best wives to their husbands as they can be. Oh, wow. I mean, that's just it, it's just amazing. They do amazing, amazing work. But anyway, the CEO of Fab Wives, a friend of mine, said that black men uh, have to link up organically to talk, i.e. a barbershop, backyard barbecue, a couple's game night, et cetera, et cetera. And she said that as soon as you start to get too organized and structured with it, men, black men aren't as interested. What do you think about what she said? Um, So I want to make sure you run that last part by me. I'm sorry, just so I can make sure I answer it correctly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She said that, you know, basically – just speaking on the topic of interest in mental health and, and talking okay. just like okay. we're doing here tonight, you know, um, they said that she said that black men have to link up organically to talk, to really open up and be vulnerable. So, oh, you definitely, know, you have the barbershop, you know, backyard barbecue, couples game night, you know, with your lady or whatever. But she said that as soon as you start to get too organized, because they're very, fat wise is very organized. I mean, they have brunches and empowerment, luncheons, and all this thing. So, but she said, as soon as you start to get too organized and structured with your movement, black men become less interested, potentially disinterested, mm, because it doesn't powerful, have the though. organic feel. So, what are your thoughts about that? Man, I'm a hundred percent, and that's one reason why our work is so unorthodox. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm totally digging that sister, man, and her. I've never really thought of it that way, but I always knew that the, if we ever go to Hollywood, they can forget about it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, we can forget about it. And so we just we we doing a lot of fluff work. We ain't doing no real work at that point. So just know, you know, we yeah. can do some. Y'all want to film and want to be look nice. We trying to get some press just to raise more dollars, whatever they want to do. But we understand when we go too deep, we get to Hollywood, we have lost the real impact. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. people ain't showing up like that no more. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, Rodney, yeah, I, think too, I think too with men, uh, especially younger men, and I think sometimes, you know, maybe why we accuse the black community of not uh, seeking uh, mental health professionals to help us, when we get too deep in that emotion or open our eyes to some things, we don't really want to deal with it, you know. I think, Lorenzo, you probably know through the work you do, but that's probably like that hard selling point or that hard breaking point to get men to just really open up and just really deal with something, especially when they turn inside to themselves to say, this is what you're dealing with, you know, and then for them to actually deal with it, you know, it, it's, it's a it's a thin ice, you know, if you will, so she's a thin ice because, you start feeling, you know, emotions and all this other stuff. And sometimes we as men, we want to just bottle that down, you know, and, and not let it come up. Exactly. No, no, you're right. You're right. And I think the, man, it's really powerful what you said because, um, 
you know, a lot of it is our, um, you know, I always talk about self-awareness, man. What I mean, self-awareness is knowing who we really are. Like, you know, I always, I always tell people like before, not even before you're doing this work, but like when you wake up and look in the mirror every day, man, like, do you really know who you are? You know what I mean? Like, and that's, you really have to do that real, like that deep identity work and understand who you are before you really can, um, especially try to start giving yourself to other people and saying how you're going to show up with other folks. Um, and I think a lot of that is really the lack of disconnect, and it's a lack, it's a lack, and it's a disconnect with black men, and it's a lack even with women, and and, and especially particularly with folks that um that identify like who we are, you know, people, black folks, um, we, you know, unfortunately we, you know, we didn't really have a lot of that time, you know, depending on our families and our infrastructure, you know, we may not have had that real uh, self-awareness and that just um, informing work of, of how we are, how we show up as humans. Um, and, and sometimes it really affects, you know, our flow, you know what I mean? Especially mm-hmm. our emotional health flow, you know? So yeah, I think that's really powerful. What you said is um, just connecting all of that. Oh yeah. Cause for a minute, you know, when you're talking about your program and you named confession, you know, I was always almost looking for you to say something towards people you know, really have to confess that, hey, I got a mental health problem, you know, or to really acknowledge it because let's say a lot of times I think I've been growing up around people, even in my family, and we knew that a certain person was a certain way or something, and it could have been a part of some type of mental health, but, you know, nobody never really addressed it. I always wanted to treat them like they were just like everybody else, you know. Uh, don't pull them to the side and make them feel any different, but when you have a something about you that is different you know sometimes it needs to be addressed for the betterment of the person not that you're trying to you know uh kick them to the curb discredit them or put them down or anything but for the betterment of what it is they may be going through or dealing with no no you're exactly right and i believe um the biggest thing is um you know, just um, yeah. You really have to, you know, really be clear about, you know, um, you know, your process too. And I, I think the biggest, you know, the, the biggest thing I've really been, really, um, you know, biggest with my with this program, particularly, particularly with the Confess Project, is um, we we want you to understand who you are, right? And like who you are, your and and how you really show up day to day. And this, because I'm gonna tell you, when I worked in site for ten years in facilities with people who had severe mental illness, I can tell you one thing about that I really was able to understand. The people that came in and out of these places that I worked at, day time by time, I would see patients sometimes that repeat patients seven, eight times in two or three years, and um, they absolutely would always come back and say, you know, um, that they were just still struggling with life. But they would be like, man, I'm just still struggling, just trying to figure it out. I just still don't know where I want to be in life, and I'm just still trying to get it together, man. I just can't figure out who I am. And I would hear so many people say that, and I and I knew that there was a root of their human connection, but there was really a root of like their identity. Like they really, you know, it's until you really figure out who you are. You, I mean, you really put yourself in real toxic relationships. You, you know, you date people that you don't really, you know. It ain't meant for you, you know. I always ask me, like, what are your core values with even dating a woman? You know, and then what are your core values? What is your non negotiables? And if you don't have those and you just date sporadically, man, you're gonna be in some toxic stuff with women, you know? Um, because yeah. you don't even know who you don't even know how you how you how you position. So now mm. you're talking about you going through breakups and you may be experiencing suicidal ideation and you going through depression and 
But, man, you hadn't even just really determined some of these core values about your relationships. And how do you – what's your picture-perfect woman, and have you met that woman yet? And have you even, like, started, you know, working on that process? So I think some of that, like, is going – again, that's going kind of wide. But I think that really comes back to even you all's mission with this show is um, we have to really, like, have a crystal clear picture of what we want so that when we, we can go after what we want. So when we know, you know, we have to – we have to treat ourselves good so that we also can get what we want. And then when we don't get what we want, we don't have to feel sabotaged because we didn't get what we want. Like, well, that's just one for me, you know, so I need better. I, I, I deserve better, you know. Oh, yeah. Hey, Lorenzo, I got one more thing I want to ask you, and it just came to my mind while you was talking. But with what you deal with, especially speaking on mental health and everything, uh, from your point of view, how do you see uh, many of our states are starting to approve uh, medical marijuana, if not recreational marijuana, and how do you see that playing with, you know, young black men, uh, black men, period, you know, and their mental health issues and relationships as well? Man, I'm not, I'm going to be honest, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge I know on the can- cannabis industry, but what I can say, you know, the criminalization of marijuana, and we know a lot of the, um, you know, the laws and how that has disenfranchised black men from going to jail and obviously going through a lot of legal issues, legal implications. Um, grateful to know that with a lot of the medical marijuana and what this will give the disposal of some possible uh, options, self-care, necessary treatment options that black men can use. Um, and hopefully mm-hmm. this, this could possibly be some tools and some, cause we need, we need tools. You know, everybody, everybody can go to therapy. Some people, medication may not be the best fit for everybody. Some folks, you know, may may need to be in some form of rehabilitation programs or, or, or you know, do, do different forms of, you know, different kind of therapies and stuff like that. But um, I can definitely see there's been a benefit to the uh, the treatment opportunities for, you know, young men, especially for men particularly. Um, and, and hopefully this could be a um, – I mean, obviously we know now that we still got to think about the, the, the backdrop of so many men that were disenfranchised criminally, you know, with records and obviously had messed up a lot of – uh, black men, particularly in the you know in the early '90s, um, across mm-hmm. the '80s, even with with marijuana. So I'm just glad to see that policy. We still got a long way to go with that too, and I know that's a much deeper conversation. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely see that that being a part of an opportunity for for men to um, to dive into if it's if it's if it's obviously fitting for their for their treatment opportunities. Mm, okay, interesting. Mhm. And how how many barbershops? You say you you know you've been traveling the country, you know, outside of your local area. How many how many barbershops have you been to so far with the Confess Project? Um, man. Ooh, so we're in nine states, seven, mm, over thirty, at least thirty, at least thirty shops. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. At least thirty, and I. Yeah, and, and, and I'm counting barber owners, so if we held that event in a specific venue and it may have been five barber owners, you know what I'm saying, or seven barber owners, you know, from you know, I'm counting those shop owners too. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so I'm counting the shop owners, then I'm counting barbers. We got over fifty barbers in our network. Over fifty. Um, probably thirty five shops. Now some of these yeah, I realize some of these guys own multiple shops. You know, so we've some cities oh, okay. we've worked in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we we work with like two guys. They own collectively. They own like ten of them. <laughs> then they own a school. You know, a couple of our guys own schools and stuff. You know, so that's we're just kind of looking at that too. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good stuff, man. Um, thirty in three years. That's, I mean, you you roll yeah, right along. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's going pretty good. Yeah, man. So we're projected after the year year of twenty twenty, we're projected to be in twenty three cities, twenty three U.S. cities after the year of twenty twenty. So, all right. Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah, because we, I mean, we used to, I mean, what what, what did you, like, once you put them out there, what did you uh, expect your, um, what your YouTube views look like? What did, what were you anticipating and what did they, did they, did they meet your expectations once you put it on video and put it out there? Oh, yeah, yeah, because we struggled a lot from people just wanting to do it. A lot of barbers up top didn't, on the top end, they didn't want to get involved, man. They, they was real taboo, man. Uh, when we filmed it and we was able to tell the story through film and through video, um, and, and, and it got some social media views. Uh, we really just we still got a lot of building to do with our YouTube. Um, social media, man, we've really done a lot of work through Instagram, social media again, you know, working with, you know, like just recently with the Huffington Post, Watch the Yard, Afro Punk. A lot of your online media sources, man, have given us some, some play, and they really helped out a lot. Um, you know, and even some of our black cultural media outlets have really given us some, 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 like I said, given us some, some play, man, to help us get our name out more. Really grateful for those people, man, those units that gave us this opportunity um, to reach our target market, you know, just because we know how many people, you know, how many of us are really reading it. So, so many people was able to, you know, tag us and stuff. I mean, it was been times that may have met somebody and they knew 10 barbers in one city and they put everybody in one message and go from there. You know what I mean? So it's just been an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Man. But the number one thing is when we put it on tape, we was able to tell the story through a good documentary. We got a couple of documentaries out. That was That's really been our tool to go to cities, to fundraise, to build the structure, to, you know, then we did the real work. We've done the data. You know, we got data. We got hard numbers. Uh, we got, we're not evidence-based. We're on the road to becoming evidence-based. Uh, but we got, we got outcomes. We got impact, you know, over... Um, half of the participants that went through our program have been better informed. Um, over 30%, 40% of those individuals uh, want to attend mental health services after going through our um, sessions. You know, um, out of five states, 90% of those participants in five cities, five U.S. cities, stated that they'd rather get therapy from a barbershop than going to an actual therapy couch. Um, you know, um, yeah, so we've had some really good outcomes in our data. So we're not just doing the, the what I say, the rah-rah work. We're really doing real work, too. We're measuring our work through, through you know, do research and, and, you know, data analysis. So that's really been helpful as well uh, for us building a sustainable program, you know. Yeah, no doubt. We, you know, over the years, over the 11 years, we did a couple of barbershop videos. But, you know, honestly, you know, we don't we don't do them anymore. And. You know, I tell you how you get your your views up on on YouTube. You know how I'm, I'm gonna give you the secret. You ready? Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Put LeBron James in the Confess Project video, and it'll blow up. Um, I've I've watched your videos. Um, you know, it's a solid product, no doubt. And you know, we've 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 invited we've been invited to do. Uh, you know, a, a, a little thing. Because what we do is, you know, we have, a, when we go to a barbershop, we have to get our camera crew together. And, you know, only, we don't charge for our time. We just charge for, you got to pay the camera crew. And most people aren't willing to do that. 
So we were, you know, the, the last time we did it, we funded out of our own pocket. And, um, okay. you know, so camera crew and a couple mic guys, so we just funded it. And what we do is we basically just roll into the barbershop, and we bring the topic, and we have a conversation. You know, there's no rehearsal. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the last video we shot, um, you know, a couple of the guys on here now were in it. And, but it was maybe like 20 guys, but we only knew, we only literally had met maybe two or three of the guys in the shop before we shot the video. So literally before the cameras cut, you know, it's like, yo, what up? I'm Rodney. Nice to meet you. All right. Action. And it was, it was no nothing. And then we just basically recorded it, but then it's hours and hours of editing. Thank, you know, thankfully we have a homeboy who volunteers his time, you know, to help, help out on the editing side, because that, that could be another expense. Um, but, you know, but we did a cost-benefit analysis, and it's, it's it's really not worth our time unless LeBron James is is in the mm-hmm. the, the shot. You know, it's really not because it's not a thousand views. It ain't it ain't worth it with me. You know, my my hourly rate is pretty expensive. You know, plus since I got you know I got three kids and I got somewhere to go every day. You know, so right. it's it, it, it's just really and so that's why we haven't done a barbershop video since 2015. Is that um you know plus you know I think that's where you're different is that you're you're going directly for the visual, um which is great because people can see you and see you in the shop and um but all of our content is audio like you know your friends and everything you know to hear this show they have to you know download the app and they can hear it but they can't see anything and that's just exactly. almost in, in today's in the twenty first century um you know it's in the if you were to prioritize is video, then audio, then text, you know, like in book form or reading. And, you know, maybe text, if you talk about social media, may have uh, superseded audio, you know, just audio okay. only. So, um, but, yeah, so, I mean, if, if, if somebody wanted to do, say, uh, want us to come to, to, Arkansas, to Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, um, to do a video, to do what we do, you know, we're going to need airfare hotel and for DM and a rental car. You know, we're going to need all of that. Yep. But it'll be worth it, man. I'm glad you told me. It'll be definitely worth it, you know? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So if your sponsors are listening, because, again, we only got one. You know, we only got one sponsor. And, um, you know. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's how I actually I, I reached out to you. I did see your Huffington Post piece, and that was excellent. That was awesome. Um. But yeah, that's how I, I was like, man, this is really dope. So I'm glad you were able to, you know, get with us uh, tonight and rap with us for a little bit. But um, it is 10:30, so we're gonna have to segue into the final segment. But before you go, Lorenzo, please, you know, tell our listeners your website, how they can get at you, you know, what's the best way to reach you, your social media handles, all of that good stuff. Go ahead, give it to our listeners one more time. Oh yeah, man! I really appreciate the opportunity, man. But um, www.theconfessproject.com, very, very detailed, descriptive site. Um, can tell about our mission, the work that we're doing. Also, how you all can donate to us. Um, and continue to see our work thrive and across communities that we're going in across the U.S. Um, coming to a city near you again, as I spoke, we'll be in 23 U.S. cities by the end of 2020. Um, and we will be in 13 cities by the end of November. Uh, right now we're going on city 10 and we have a few more stops before this year is out. 
Uh, we're very grateful. Uh, check us out on Facebook, Instagram at The Confess Project. Twitter is The Confess Project as well. Uh, we're out on Google. I think, again, we um, you can you know, search our work. You want to stay in tune. Um, and hopefully, if you see any way of connecting with us, um, you know, hit us up directly. Somebody get back with you really quickly about how we can collaborate and work together further. So I appreciate y'all, man. Thanks for having me tonight. Absolutely. It's our pleasure, man. Be easy. And like I said, you're welcome to hang around for our next segment. This uh, final segment will conclude promptly at 1130. So it may be past your bedtime. I know it's past mine, but I got one more leg uh, <laughs> to go here. But um, appreciate you, brother. Um, okay, no, I, I, I now want yeah, no doubt. I now want to uh, formally introduce uh, my next guest for the evening, uh, Tony Spann. And Tony is the Chief Clinical Officer for Henry Health, and Lorenzo mentioned Henry Health, Kevin Deadners, uh, the founder and CEO of uh, Henry Health. Uh, he couldn't be with us tonight, but um, Tony's here. Henry Health can be found at www.henry-health.com. So what's up, Tony? Not much, fellas. I was going to say I was listening on and uh, pretty amazed to hear everything that's going on with the project. And uh, it's always a good time when you can hear brothers coming together to make, like, an impact. And I think that's what's really about making an impact and doing some culture shift. So I'm um, just really proud to hear that. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That's what we do, man. So yeah. Lorenzo's from Little Rock. Uh, where are you from, Tom? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, originally born in Bossier. Louisiana, so not too far from <laughs> from Arkansas, Little Rock, in in some okay. respects. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, military family, so I lived all over. So it's you know it's not just my hometown in Louisiana, but um, definitely familiar with the architects and all that that area down there. Mhm, mhm. And where mm-hmm. are the Henry Health offices located? That's a good question. So we are kind of spread out. Um, so you do have Kevin and uh, you have a couple other people that were here in actually the D.C. metro area. Then you have um, Oliver. He's actually in Texas. And then you have um, Ashley. She's a self-care support officer. She's in Mississippi. And a lot of our identities are from down south. We're actually from the south. Kevin's from Arkansas. And so there's just that kind of down home feeling that we got about each other and just kind of a real caring atmosphere and spirit about community and health and just about individuals and making a change in our community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are you yeah. married, single? What's your status, bro? <laughs> My status is single, you know, and, you know, oh, whenever oh, God oh, has... Oh, we got some yeah. ladies <laughs> We got some uh, That's good. I mean, I, I didn't know if they were still up. Yeah, if they still up, I mean, <laughs> It is what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. Any kids? Any kids? You got any kids? No, no, no kids, nothing like that. It's wow, just, it's ladies, just do y'all hear this? Single dude, <laughs> Go no stars. Go stars. Chief, let, I guess, let, me, let me reiterate, let me reiterate, chief clinical officer <laughs> at Henry Health. Got a corner office in Crystal City looking over the water, over the over downtown. Um, but no, <laughs> kidding, I guess that's how it goes after 1030, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I rolled my sleeves up at this time. I, I was just goofing off the first hour, but you know, the folks that hang around for the second, second hour, they know it's, um, I, I, I come loaded for bear. So, um, how long, how long, how long have you been with uh, Henry Health? That's a good question. So I've been with Henry Health since the inception. Um, Kevin and Oliver uh, first came up with the concept and idea. That was probably about six, 
six months, maybe even a year. And then after that, they came to me um, just with the intentions on bringing in that clinical piece. So in its entirety, it's been about two years. But, you know, I've done work with Kevin prior to that, probably about a year prior to that. So the whole kind of idea of coming together, is it's, it's been Kevin doing it very organically. So Kevin has this knack for pulling people. Whenever he thinks he, you could be a part of the team and you got something that you can bring, he does it. And so I guess I came up in mind and – it's been a it's been a good ride. It's been a good ride, man. Because I think what we've done is done it organically, and I think that's been a part of this conversation already. Just about doing things naturally and letting it unfold. And so it's been been a good two years of letting it unfold so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. long have you yeah. worked in the uh, mental health field? Wow. Um, funny enough, it's it's probably been about twenty years. Now, it doesn't seem like how can that be because you're so young, right? But at the same time, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> a lot of that's been because I've done a lot of my work before I was licensed. And so I've done counseling with, you know, juveniles, with kids. I've done it with families. And then once I got licensed um, and started my own practice and getting into the field, I've done it particularly with um, working with couples, organizations, working with my own clinicians that that I work with and just really getting the essence of what it is to work with people of color, trying to understand what it is to see mental health for what it is now, because it's definitely changed in the sense on how people conceptualize it. It's not what it just used to be. And so over these last 20 years, I've definitely grown in what I see myself in the identity of a clinician. And um, it's been a, it's been an evolution for myself, especially in these last four or five years. Mhm. So, yeah, what's yeah. the best part? What's the best part about working with Henry Health? You know, the best part about working with Henry Health is that we're really thinking outside of the box when it comes to mental health, particularly with people of color. Um, you know, our focus really it's still with black men and looking at how do we tap into uh, the psyche of men, period, within the psyche of black men, particularly those here in the United States. And I think. The challenges that have come along with that, um, particularly looking at how to increase treatment-seeking behaviors, um, how to find them in these spaces, like Lorenzo's been talking about with these, uh, with the barbershops and getting into the spaces where they're actually talking and having some raw conversations. And that's been the best part. That's been the most challenging part, but it's the most rewarding because if we don't think outside of the box and try to get where they're at, how the thinking goes, um, we're just always going to be targeting an area that we're missing. And that, that hasn't been helping us so far. It won't continue to help us. So I, I, I like how we're thinking outside of the box. And really, Henry Health has made it its mission, um, particularly thinking about how to pull other partners, other stakeholders in, um, which is a part of this conversation, but at the same time, honoring what has been a particular past for African-American men and trying to bring um, more of the value for the conversation for them and pulling that narrative and making it more meaningful. So that's, that's really been the goal. It's still the focus, and it's, it's been the most rewarding because I'm a part of that community. You're a part of that community. And um, that's where we have to start making some differences. Mm-hmm. Now, you have um, traditional office space. For, for, you know, for a black man when it comes to you, you have traditional office space where you can see yeah, 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 I do. So I do have that traditional office space. So um, one is in Largo, Largo, Maryland, um, Prince George's County. And then I do have one in downtown Silver Spring, which is Montgomery County. And, you know, the, the typical Monday through Friday, 
Saturday and Sunday, depending on, um, you know, depending on your flavor, what you need, what your work schedules. But at the same time, what I try to do is create that flexibility. I think um, particularly as I think about Henry Health and even with my practice, I've always tried to figure out how to reduce the barriers um, to mental health, reduce uh, and trying to increase the access and, you know, whatever it is where maybe you need the weekend or you maybe need the evening or maybe even the day, trying to provide that. And um, I think Henry Health has done good with thinking outside the box, but as well as my practices that are on ground brick and mortar, that's, that's definitely been my initiative. Yeah, and I want to take it a little further, you know, speaking on mm-hmm. the topic of flexibility and the increased mm-hmm. access because, you know, Lorenzo is unorthodox. You know, he goes mm-hmm. into a regular everyday barbershop and, you know, turns the barbers into like chief clinical officers, you know, so <laughs> that's great. To, to make to make the you know, yourselves and the mental health field more attractive to black men, um, don't you think you should adopt an approach more like Lorenzo's, you know, so more more men can get the mental health assistance that they need? I mean, and what I mean by that is when it comes to mental health for black men, is a traditional office space the right right approach in downtown, you know, areas or whatever. I mean, you look at how video games have have evolved. You know, mm-hmm. back in the day when we were playing Atari, you know, you're just kind of sitting on the couch. But then <laughs> right. as we moved into the 20th century, 21st century, you know, uh, my ankle is hurt literally from, uh, you know, playing Xbox you know, with my kids, you know, <laughs> playing, playing these sports games with them. And I'm, you know, I'm limping around here because I'm an old man now. But, <laughs> right. you know, do you, do you think that in the, in the vein of uh, increasing access, do you think that maybe, and this is real far-fetched, you know, this, again, it's after 1030, but <laughs> do you think that maybe you need to, specifically for black men, maybe you need to exit the traditional office model? in order to attract black men to come see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, and you know, I'm glad that you said that because this is like a point for me to just kind of note that Henry Health is all telehealth. You know, it's telehealth therapy. Um, self-care support is telehealth. You know, the, the app that's in creation and in finalization is um, allowing that access across the nation um, and thinking about it in some respects across the world and then thinking about teletherapy and providing clinicians to somebody that's, living in Prince George's County, but the therapist is in Eastern Maryland, or somebody living in Shreveport, Louisiana, but giving access to somebody in New Orleans. Um, that's really what we want to do, because when you think about decreasing the barriers, eliminating the barriers, we need to do that as much as possible. And geographical location is a big issue. And so although I do have those brick and mortars that we just talked about, teletherapy has definitely been adopted by me, and it's definitely the soul of Henry Health. Um, because we know that not everybody can get to a downtown Silver Spring or not everybody can get to uh, some place in Los Angeles. We really need to create these opportunities where if somebody's in a barbershop, maybe they're finding a space where they can kind of go over and talk to a clinician or maybe, you know, they're at a church event or a, a quiet space in a library, and that's the point of access. And so that's definitely been the novel idea for increasing treatment-seeking behavior and decreasing the barriers to access. So it's a great question. It's a question that was the founding premise on why we wanted to do what we are doing and making sure that um, as much as we can, making it um, appropriate, making it, um, making it feel safe, and uh, making sure that 
all the precautions are put in place for, for teletherapy and self-care support. No doubt. I'm glad you're all mm-hmm. on that page because I know that downtown Silver Spring lease rate, <laughs> I could not imagine. My brother lives in Silver Spring, so I, yeah, I, yeah, I only imagine. But, I mean, you reduce that overhead, and like you say, you get, you know, you get more men the, the help and the assistance that they need. Um, yeah. And, I mean, but just for our listeners' sake, I mean, what is the, what's the price range estimate approximate for a one-hour session with the chief clinical officer for Henry Health. What does that run? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, um, it, there's that can go in two ways, right? Because, one, we do take insurance. So I, I want to note that. So if it's insurance, your copay could be as low as $0, as low as $0, right? So 0 to, what, up to like 35 for copay because um, we are working with Aetna, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield. So you have that. And then you also have it where if it's out of pocket, you know, it's at $99. And so our thing is, one, also trying to make sure that we're looking at it in other components, um, thinking about how to create uh, opportunities by using other subsidies um, and uh, making it affordable through other means for people that want therapy but need it more affordable. Um, so our thing is that we're, we're looking at different modalities of being able to take um, take as many men as we can or many individuals that need therapy and finding alternatives. But right now it's through um, insurance or out-of-pocket. But there, we're, we're looking at some other opportunities that look at membership models, um, looking at other opportunities that could be subsidized through, like, let's say, the District of Columbia, State of Maryland, um, other national federal programs. So what, what we, as I said before, what we don't want to do is create these barriers. And what we're trying to find as much as we can is getting these sponsors, as your brothers have mentioned. Um, that's so important if we can find sponsors that are sponsor a brother for six months, um, which is typical length of therapy. That's, that's what we want. Um, that's the, that would mm-hmm. be the ideal goal, is that brothers can just be supported, individuals, families, mothers, kids. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tony, are you finding over the years that you've done this, are you finding mm-hmm. a certain area that men of color seem to uh, kind of fit in? You know what I mean? I know it's a wide area in the mental health, but is there some, mm-hmm. like, more areas that you seem, you know, men of color just kind of fill that area more of? That's a good question. And just to see, make sure I'm tracking it, you mean, like, as brothers come in, where are we finding that they come in at what point of life? Or do we find, what do you mean, mental health professionals? Um, yeah, well, just what do you find uh-huh. that as far as what they need more help with uh, on the mental health um, side of it? Uh, that's good. So it, I would say it's more around the social, emotional aspects of things. I think for men um, in particular, the way we display our feelings is, you know, more physical-like. It, it, it may You may see a brother, he's kind of frowning up, arms crossed, or, you know, it, when it's time to finally show that he's been upset or angry about something that's developed in his past or just what's going on in his life, you may see it displayed in a way that it's not truly visceral, which means it's getting down to the essence of what's going on. It's not emotional as much. And so what I do find when I'm having brothers finally come in, unfortunately, it's, it's at somewhat of the lowest point for them um, because they feel like whatever's going on, they just got to talk about it. And so it's some emotion or some feeling that they've just never been able to deal with. And, um, Particularly, it, it comes around um, some of the social political issues that are going on in our country. It goes around some of the issues that are happening within the relationship. Um, 
I'm finding that when trying to navigate all of that, right, what it is to be a man in one's own body and identity, what it is to be a black man, and then what is it to be a black man within your community, and then having to navigate all those things on your job and your life and career and, and so on and so forth. So they're finding that safe space to say, man, it's just all messed up, you know, and I'm trying to make the best of it. And uh, I appreciate that moment because I feel the same way. And so we, now we both can talk about what's actually happening in our own experiences. Mm. That's good. And also, I, got, as I guess earlier, well, let me just get this here, Rod. Uh, yeah, as I, I guess yeah, earlier, uh, with more states that are uh, legalizing medical, medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, um, recreational miracle. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Recreational mm-hmm. marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I, got I was having the trouble with that word. But are you finding that for men who self-medicate themselves, uh, you know, how do you find this uh, helping out as far as with the mental health field? Is that like a kind of a good thing, bad thing, just from your perspective? That's a good question. Um, I'm always leery whenever I hear that, you know, somebody's using any kind of substance or alternative to take themselves out of the reality. Now, you know, in certain places like the District of Columbia, other places in the United States, that it's legal, right? Or it's be decriminalized, right? And so there's that, you know, using it for pleasure or however you want to use it, that's fine. But when I feel that there may be a clinical component to it where it's being substance use or substance abuse, um, regardless if it's marijuana, alcohol, or some other illicit substance, that's where I step in and try to figure out why are you trying to step out of the form of reality. And, you know, there's a lot of clinical assessments to use. There's tests that you can do. You can even just do some qualitative questions. But I, I, I try to decipher between the two um, because I, there's, I don't want to judge in somebody's process. Um, it's like if somebody uses alcohol moderately and on their own. Um, same thing could be for marijuana. Um, and it could also be for medical reasons. But if I get the notion and we're talking and they're honest enough and they're saying that, hey, they're using it because they're stressed, right? And that's where I usually find it. The, the comfortable word for brothers sometimes is I'm distressed. And so when yeah. I hear that, they're equating it to oh, I'm distressed out, man. I just need to do it because so, I'm stressed out. My thing is we need to deal with the stress, right? Because mm. what if the stress keeps on getting bigger? You know, how much are you going to keep mm. on smoking? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. so that's, 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 that's what I do. I try to tease out what's going on, how often it's happening. And there's a level of no judgment depending on, you know, if it's recreational and legal. But um, that marijuana is in that real gray area right now. Um, yeah. But as a clinician, I try my best to make sure I'm being clinical about it. Okay. Yeah. That's good. And uh, you, I mean, Tony, that's good. You, you mentioned the, um, you know, the sociopolitical, you know, things that are going on, mm-hmm. you know, in our society mm-hmm. today. And um, I, I got a monkey wrench now. With the significant number, with the significant number of mass shootings that are being committed by white men, shouldn't Henry Hill shift his focus toward white men instead of black men? Well, you know that's a good question. Um, when so for Henry Health, there's definitely been some pivoting and how we make this really inclusive. So our platform, um, the the terminology we're using is it's a digital community for men and their families. Um, so I can tell you right now, we do have um, a, a, a range of brothers, um, a range of men on the platform. So that's a Caucasian uh, millennial to a 63-year-old African-American male. And, and just kind of noting that range, you know, everybody's out here 
looking for help in some ways and then some more than others. And so when we think about different ethnicities, different age groups on needing support, I would say that we need to start targeting, targeting all kinds of um, individuals. Um, I think as a country, I think as, as a world, um, we're getting to this place where when we think about how we deal with our aggression, how we deal with our emotions, how we deal with our frustrations, you know, we're, we're taking it out on other people or we're acting out in ways that are just, you know, mass shootings or mass killings or even individual. And at this point, I think we need to aggressively look at how we're treating people, mental health, our children, you know, our elderly. I think everybody needs to get help. You know, I think so it's really a broad universal stroke. And to, for, men, for Henry Health, we're looking at it at a very inclusive stroke, um, particularly still working with African-American men because that population um, is really the founding premise on why we started Henry Health. But at the same time, getting help to men uh, in general and their families. Mm-hmm. So you would say mm-hmm. that Henry Health is primarily for black men, but not only for black men. Exactly, exactly. And um, I'm glad we're teasing that out and stressing that out. Um, you know, our, our work and our focus and a lot of our research and future goals are still with working with African-American men, black men. And I, I want that to be the premise, and I'm going to explain why. There's not enough research, there's not enough treatment, and there's not enough care and support for men of color, particularly black men. And the only way that we're going to make some real culture shifting is by giving that the attention it needs. And so we're not stepping away from that because that's really important to us. However, at the same time, Mm -hmm. we know that we have the skills, we have the ability to make sure that we're servicing all people. And so that's also the premise as well. Um, So in doing so, um, it does kind of make that inclusive feel and that um, opportunity to deal with some populations that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to mental health, do you think that that black men – and again, this question is just way out there. Um, do, do you think that black men are, are generally the most durable? I mean, for example, I mean we have thousands of young black boys who are growing up in poverty and literal war zones. You know, probably mm-hmm. suffering from PTSD. Yet and still, they remain resilient. I think I was reading an article just today about you know uh, Chicago. I mean, I think they had mm-hmm. thirty-four people shot and yeah, seven that. people killed you know, just mm-hmm. over Labor Day weekend. And, right. you know, yet they remain resilient. Yet on the other side of the coin, as we're discussing here, generally speaking, you know, we're not painting everybody in the same corner, but there are kids on the other side of the coin who kill both of their parents just because they were told to go to bed and stop playing their favorite video game. And, mm-hmm. you know, are, are there any studies to, the, to your knowledge? And, I mean, you're the clinician. I'm not. Um, are there any studies on the aspects of race and resiliency when it comes to mental health? That's a good question. There's, there's, some, there's some studies out there, and particularly just looking at resiliency, and off the top of my head, I can't throw them out. I wish I could. Um, but I have, I can say particularly I've looked at them just because of a lot, some of my work was around brown resiliency. Um, and I think when we think about the, the correlation, right, when we think about looking at studies and finding is there enough significance around mental health, looking at protective factors, um, that's there. And when I say protective factors, that's a really a big component of resiliency for some people. Like when we think about an African-American community, protective factors are the barbershops. They are the, the churches. They are 
the older brothers, the siblings, extended kin. That kind of protective factors helps with resiliency. And so when we think about some of the protective factors that have been able to help reduce some of the mental health issues, because if we think about as much as we've gone through as African-Americans, as black men, the trauma, and I, you know, some brothers use PTSD and some other clinicians, but, you know, the brothers I hang out with, we call it continuous trauma, right? So it's always happening because it's not done. It's not post. And so when we think about that continuous trauma that we go through, those protective factors, like my mother, my 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 great-grandfather, all these people that have kind of come together to create this community, although we go through the hardships, it has helped to protect us from some of the mental health issues that other communities may not have been able to muster through. Um, and I say that very lightly, but at the same time, um, yes, to ask the question, the resiliency, the protective factors have really been able to help reduce those things, as well as we still see the social emotional issues that come through the experience of 400 years, the experience of thousands of years mm-hmm. of being traumatized. So you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned, you, you, you mentioned um, something interesting in good words, but you mentioned the church and mm-hmm. how, how has the black church made mental health a taboo subject? That's a good question on in, in kind of tying those two things together. I think what what we're seeing is, and this has also been as chief clinical officer, um, something that I want to do is, you know, as, as black people, as black diaspora, the mind, body, and soul was always one, regardless of how we looked at spirituality. Um, prior to Christianity, Islam, uh, you know, however you want to go back to particular places of Africa, it was always one, mind, body, and soul. I think once getting here and then adopting certain aspects of religion, it's kind of gotten separated where, okay, that's mind over here, that's body here, and that's soul over here. And if you think about the psyche of black people, the psyche of people, it's all one. And so I feel like because of that separation, there just has been this place where we haven't dived into it like we could or we should. And that's for many reasons, because at one point when we think about mental health psychology, that really wasn't inclusive. So that kind of pushing into the church or the church pushing into that realm, they just didn't marry. And there was a part of it where it was naturally that. So what I'm hoping is that as we talk to churches, as we talk to um, community members and leadership, we pull that back together. And I think some of the taboo that may have been around that, it may have been just in our community in general because we're still dealing with a lot of that stigma, a lot of the taboo issues around that. And then I think some, some people really don't know how to talk about the subject, you know, and in, in, in trying to pull that into the pulpit, trying to have con- um, the congregation talk about it, it. It's a real nebulous space for a lot of people. And I think just as much as we're collaborating in other spaces, Finding the time to bring leadership together, having the, the, the difficult discussions, trying to figure out what are the barriers, why hasn't it happened, how can we make it happen, what do people feel comfortable with in bringing that into the church or bringing it into uh, aspects of spirituality, and um, maybe doing some culture shifting around that, because in some ways we've been taught that this is the way it's supposed to be, um, a separation of mind, body, and soul from other cultures, other people. And adopting that and realizing that um, as you have more black clinicians, as you have more black mental health professionals, figuring out, no, that's not the way we've done things. And that's not how we should probably operate because it doesn't fit within our body, within our people. 
and trying to see how we bring it all back together. And uh, I think it'll take some time, but I think we have to realize we have to do things that work best for, for our people um, and, and really adopt things that work for us in healing ourselves. Hey, I have a question That's for you. Um, uh-huh. What you're saying that um, ultimately the only way that I can frame this question, is there like a word or like a, a brief description of the general mindset that say a young black man should have or a young black boy or black people should have that if we had that, we would go in the right direction or is it way bigger than that? Do we got to, I don't know, teach people tons and tons of things. Like what, mm-hmm. what, what is like, is there a, like just a mindset that we should have that would probably make us pretty safe? Uh, that's a good question on how do we insulate our communities? How do we strengthen our communities? Um, you know, I, I I don't know if there's a particular term or word um, per se. Um, there is somewhat of a thought process. Um, Dr. Barbara Sizemore, she talks about um, if a community, if a race of people, particularly she was talking about African-Americans, are to be able to move through the generations to push forward, they have to heal from within. And the only way that we're going to be able to heal within and actually be a healthy uh, race of people, a healthy community, is that we have to start by healing. And that's, she was saying that, you know, once you heal and once you continue to heal from within, there's a way of moving through. Now, as a community, we've definitely done our due diligence. We've set ourselves um, firmly in, uh, in America, so they're so firmly in, in, in the world, but healing within is still going to be so important as we move forward. Um, um, I can, the word that comes to mind for me is healing, like we need to heal, um, heal hey, mind, body, and soul, heal community. It, it's funny, it's, well, it, when you say that, you know what, you, what, what it makes me think of, if mm-hmm. healing is the word, um, the best way to heal is to forgive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like I agree. you like almost have to do that in order to heal. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. part uh, of it. And then also what y'all talk about, you know, religion, I think a lot of times when you just say, well, pray on it, you know, we expect God to do something about it from a spiritual standpoint, but I'm just a person that believes in. I'm a believer, you know, but prayer and practical work on the situation, you know, together helps, you know, so it's part of that healing process, you know, all that praying on it and the whole nine yards, it all can come together and part of, you know, religion. I mean, our leader, you know, Jesus Christ himself said forgive them when he was dying on the cross. So forgiveness is important and putting all those elements together to bring something productive is, is what we got to concentrate on, but it's got to be from a united front, you know, it can't be some of us doing it half of us not doing it. Some people still skeptical. I think a lot of times in our community, when it does come to mental health and then being seen by a professional, you know, we get more stigmatized than for the healing and forgiveness to take us a sake than anything. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. It it takes action and and it takes action from as a community. So just like thinking about this conversation, we have Lorenzo um, on his front and all the work that he's doing and, and stepping into spaces that are like novel and, you know, provocative and, and addressing that. And then we have 
uh, this talk radio where, you know, black men are coming together and, and, and healing from that aspect. And then we got the mental health piece. I think the more we can continue to attack something aggressively and address it from our perspective, from seeing it from our ideas, I think we have a better chance. So that's that coming together, as you're saying, in action and community, but it has to be the work. You know, you can pray and work at the same time. You can pray and heal. Oh, yeah. You can pray and go to see a therapist. You can pray with your therapist, depending on what kind of therapist you got. Um, so I think, again, kind of pulling it all together, that mind, body, and soul, and making it one community is what we need. Good word. And on that, yeah, on that note, and um, of course, we expect you to keep it in strict confidence, but you know, how many black ministers, you know, do you, do you see? How many black male ministers or do you know of that are, you know, kind of seeking, um, you know, ment- some some a session on the couch in downtown Silver Spring? You know, I mean, is there, I mean, do you do you have clients who are ministers? It's like, yo, bro, I'm stressed, you know, as a minister, you know, feeding the flock and, you know, all these things. I mean, do you have ministers that are seeking? You know, mm-hmm. the mental health? Um, that's a good question. Not currently right now. I've had one, um, and I've had deacons. And so, you know, I, I have brothers that are in leadership in the church, um, in the black church, or just in church general. And so I've had them, or I have them. Um, I can probably say that firmly about somebody right now. And, and so when that comes up, you know, I, I think what happens is, yeah, leaning on the cross, right, leaning on God, leaning on all these things that we've learned and are definitely part of the community of the black church. But I think there's also a point where even the pastor wants to talk to somebody about something that's going on in his life um, yeah. that he doesn't want to talk to the first lady about. He doesn't want to talk to the congregation or the deacon. You know, he's talked to God. But at the same time, he wants to talk to a human being that, you know, uh, has the knowledge, skills, and ability to to support him through that. And I appreciate that because we're all human. We all make mistakes. And, you know, looking for help from another person that, hey, I don't know anything about your life, you go back to your congregation, but you got your chance to get it out. You know, it's not confession. It's not testimony. It's actually a point where you're working on some things and getting it out clinically. And I think that's, that's the healing because even pastor needs to heal, you know. And, um, Nobody's above that, you know, and I think that's the issue is particularly in communities where, you know, the pastor at many times was the the leader of the community, like the leader of the black community and, and having to hold it all together. But I feel like that's also how the black man has also been looked at, you know, has to be strong for the family, has to be strong for the community, but also putting on this, uh, trying to put it all on by themselves. And that's an issue. You know, we need to really say that being there's a lot of strength in finding humility or in your weakness or just finding that moment just to unburden yourself. And um, we need to give people more permission to do that. All our leaders down to people in the pulpit or in the community, more permission to say it's okay, that you don't have to be strong all the time. And that's for women, men, children, anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good words. And I want to give permission because I've been hogging the mic this evening. Tell them. Don't let me hog the mic. If y'all got a question for Tony, jump in here, man. We only got 25 more minutes, so I know y'all, yeah. y'all, y'all just taking all this in. But you know, jump, jump in, man. This is some deep stuff. I mean, so um, is Lorenzo still there? No, he left. He left. Yeah, let me yeah. step off. That's he fine. Left. That's all good, man. I know it's getting yeah. late. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's past my bedtime too. I was telling them earlier. I go to bed at nine um, these yeah. days, uh, especially with school back in session. So y'all, yeah. you know, that's why I say it's why any anything after ten thirty is just you don't know what's gonna <laughs> come out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's smooth. But let's, whatever you guys got, man. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got a few more tricks up my sleeve. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. with, with regarding, you know, you, you mentioned about, you know, the black the church and, um, you know, just, just, you know, being comfortable with talking about some of these things as it relates specifically to mental health. And I wanted to ask you from a clinician's perspective, uh, what are your thoughts on people who counsel people? Um, but haven't had the formal training and education like yourself. You're 20 years in the game. You know, obviously mm-hmm. you've degreed up. You know, you're the chief clinical officer with the corner mm-hmm. office, you know, overlooking downtown <laughs> Silver Spring, like all of these things. Right, but, I right. mean, you know, honestly, you know, these people that counsel people, maybe it be, you know, marriage-related or, um, you know, just mental health-related, are these people that are unlicensed your ally or your enemy? Oh, that's a good question. So um, they're neither in, in, in a bad in, in a good context, right? Neither bad nor good. Um, just like how Lorenzo was talking about brothers in the barbershop, you know, being the first defense line of defense before we as clinicians can talk to them and moving them in that direction. So those kind of opportunities are perfect where you may have it where there's clergy or, or individuals that may not be licensed and they're in these spaces where they can help people out. But then there's this other space, and I think this is where you may also be getting to, and I, and I want to make sure that I speak to this too. There are times where there are people that aren't trained, they don't have the technique, they're not licensed. I would hope, and I'm kind of speaking this out to them as well as speaking it out and just professing it, I would hope that they know that, hey, you know, I ain't got this, or I don't have that, and I, I need to say you need to see somebody, brother or sister, that I'm just talking – from a very layman's term or very small space in the clinical realm of that. I don't have that expertise. But I do appreciate if somebody says, hey, I need to get this off my chest. I need to share this. But them not taking on this long-term kind of role when it doesn't mean that. And, you know, we've talked about this before where it's like, hey, somebody comes on the show, you know enough to say, we got to get you somewhere else or seek help. Um, My thing is, we need to do better with listening to people. So let's start with that. I don't mind that. But after that, really still pushing them, supporting them, guiding them, hand-walking them, showing them resources, and getting them to the spaces they need to be at. And so I don't want to tell people, don't, don't be that person to listen. You know, if you see something, you hear something, and that person needs that lending ear, please give that to them. But please don't make it where now you're trying to continuously counsel them when you know that they need help. You know, that's the other responsibility that you have as a brother, as a sister, to be brave enough, strong enough, and encourage them to get the other help as much as you can. Mm. Right. Hey, Tony, right. what do you yeah. – uh, I was going to say, Tony, what's your thoughts on uh, parents who have younger children uh, who may have some, you know, mental health issues, but instead of them mm-hmm. addressing it from a – you know, clinical point or medical point or whatever, they feel if they keep their children just doing what, you know, all the other children doing, then they're mm-hmm. going to kind of fall in line. Oh, well, I can tell you that don't work. Um, yeah. As much as I work with kids, I mean, that's 
in the scheme of my practice, I would say working with couples, families, and kids, um, that's kind of like the, the tier of people I work with the most. Um, I can say as working with kids and working with kids long-term um, over five or six years, unless they're getting the help they need, unless that behavior or emotion isn't, is being targeted, it doesn't change because neglecting it, overlooking it, hoping that the older brother will help the younger brother change, it doesn't work like that. Everybody's their own individual. And particularly neglecting it or hoping that it, the brother or the sister could help them may you know, perpetuate and foster it because the issue may be between the brother. The issue may be because there's some kind of abuse going on or some kind of neglect going on or just feeling uh, othered or ostracized and I think what happens is parents, um, particularly if there's several kids, you know, you kind of get to this place where sometimes the middle child gets thrown in there and sometimes in the mix, and sometimes you just don't know how to handle the issue. Um, and you don't want to look like a bad parent. You just hope that it kind of goes away. But what I can say is I've never seen where it goes away. It just manifests itself somewhere different. Um, yeah. And that's, we got to do better at that. We got to do better at saving our kids, helping our kids, loving our kids, getting help for our kids. Um, they need it just as much as anybody else's kids. And that's our responsibility. You know, it's definitely too many generations out of a place where we didn't have the resources and opportunities. If I don't have it, hopefully I can help somebody else. If somebody else has it, hopefully they can help somebody else, you know, as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, my opinion, um, and I want to go back to the non-licensed therapist. Um, you see that a lot in the church. And I may even go a, a step beyond and say the black church where, you know, people will sign up for certain jobs and, and duties. And then just, you know, marriage counselors, let, let's just say marriage counselors, and they're, they – they're counseling people on their own knowledge. And then I mm-hmm. think a lot of times they misdiagnose what the problem may be. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. And go back to the basic. Well, you got to communicate more. You got to date your <laughs> wife more. You got to, you know, all these basic stuff when it could be, you know, mental illness or some other thing that happened long before. You, you see, the person got married. I, I think that that is something that shouldn't happen like spend the money and get a licensed therapist that, that can actually lead your congregation in the right way. Good. And I, I, I totally agree with that. And um, I couldn't tell you how many couples where it started off where they, they did the premarital or the marital counseling, and it really was more mental health, as you just mentioned. It was more social, emotional, and it was anxiety or depression or, you know, anything else that you can think of. And, you know, it led to having these other issues, right? But a a clinician can do a deep dive into that and actually talk about how to really treat it and finding other methods. And so I do agree to that, um, where there's just this layman kind of the general practice and knowledge, what is the scripted information, but then the, the actual support and help that the couple or that individual may need is something that deals more deeper social-emotional. And that's where I'm hoping that churches can do better with fostering congregations and having mental health components. Um, Right. But it's something still in the work. I I know some some churches do have that mental health component, but I wish they would connect more with entities and having a pipeline 
um, and supporting right. that. So, yeah. Good words. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, with that question with folks who are not licensed, you know, not in the field, I think it's mm-hmm. real interesting to hear you two guys talk because both of y'all's first name is Tony, or both of y'all's okay. name is Tony, and you're <laughs> a, a chief. You're the chief clinical, you know, chief clinical officer <laughs> for Henry Health overlooking downtown Silver Spring. You're stressing that, you know, man. Tony, I see you coming with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna get your I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get your inbox full tonight um, with with inquiries um, after this cut. But on the flip side, we have you know the other Tony who was just speaking. He's not licensed, you know, just an everyday, you know, just a regular everyday guy. However, he's the CEO of what we do here, Married Men Don't Talk, nice. you know, and right. you know, I, I just, you know, it's just it's just interesting, and and the reason I, I raised that question. Um, you know, because I thought about it and I, I read something, you know, the other day and, um, you know, I'll quote, it's just a, a few sentences here. I'll quote it, uh, led by a moderator who suggests a theme. It is powerful to hear men talk, listen, react, argue, laugh, and choke up with feelings. As a group therapist for many years, I was impressed with the content and the process of the episodes and the moderator's awareness that those listening quietly were as much a part of this powerful experience as those speaking. This is not a fictionalized or dramatized attempt to entertain. This is a place to talk and address life's issues. It is a valuable gift to the men who tune in and the men who join in. It is also a gift to the wives and families who love them, end quote. And that was a quote by uh, Dr. Dr. Suzanne Phillips. She's a licensed psychologist, psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. diplomat in group psychology. You probably heard of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. She has uh, many titles, adjunct, wow. professor of clinical psychology mm-hmm. at LIU, um, mm-hmm. co-author of three books, 30 articles. But mm-hmm. she wrote that about <laughs> Married Men Don't Talk. You know, we, we've been wow. on her show and – Again, right. Tony, right. you know, not like the, the three of us are not licensed. Like I, I have a day job I go to. This mm-hmm. is just, you know, essentially a hobby. But I, I like your answer with, you know, the fact that, you know, we're we're not the enemy of uh, clinicians, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, now we have a resource that, you know, when if we have guys that come to us say, hey, you know, I'm really – I'm really about the blow, and it's something that's beyond, you know, our skill set. Now we can just refer them to, you know, folks like you who are professionals right. in the field, and mm-hmm. no matter where they are, you just mentioned the telehealth piece doesn't matter, you know, because with mm-hmm. social media, we're all connected. So, you know, now we have a place that's like, yo, let's get you some real help. Whereas before we mm. didn't have that, it was just like, uh, you know, we'll, you know, me and Tony and Darren, we'll figure something out. But, you know, right. now we have a, right. a, a bona fide legitimate resource that, right, right. you know, can potentially, you, you can use your insurance, you know, from your job to help uh, subsidize the cost for your health and your, and your, you know, what you need. So I think it's, I think it's good synergy here. And I'm, I'm glad we did this show, um, you know, mm. tonight is, uh, it's, it's just really important work, and I think Lorenzo mentioned it. It's like it's, it's, this is not sexy. I mean, I'm I'm in my sweatpants and t-shirt, <laughs> in the, in, at a card table in the corner of my basement. It's toys everywhere. 
I mean, it, this is not sexy at all. That's why we stick the audio. Like, y'all don't need to see me. Y'all don't need to see right. us. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, right, I, I right. do like your answer about, you know, those folks that are, you know, not licensed, but, you know, just really, you know, willing to help. And at least they can get them to a point in a place where, mm-hmm. you know, they can, you, we can hand it off, you know, to folks, you know, like, like Henry Hill, you know, so. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but Rodney, I just. Say that. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that they're handing it off, though. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean? and, mm-hmm. you know, especially those people mm-hmm. in that position where they've been introduced as the as the counselor of a certain mm-hmm. entity. You know, I think that, that the pride the pride in them is saying that we're going to fix this and keep it in house. When the right thing to do mm-hmm. is pass it off, pass it off. You already know you you can't diagnose it, or you may be misdiagnosing whatever the issue is. Mm-hmm. Pass mm-hmm. it off. Just pass it off. I mean, it's okay to be the catcher's mitt, but once you catch it, pass the ball. You know, so these people can get proper help. <laughs> right. that's, that's one thing about when you do this, you got to be honest. You know, you got to be honest with yourself, right. and especially from a religious realm. Because like I say, I know sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, we highly like, oh, you know, the Lord going to fix it. But, you know, and I don't disagree with that. But, again, you know, when we have people uh, here on earth, you know, that's in mm-hmm. place to deal with some of this stuff. Instead of, you know, they feel like they the end-all, cure-all, you know, as you're saying, Tony, right. you know, to probably yeah. put it in this right place because everybody working together, yeah. you know, it only can be for the better victory. Yeah, I think I agree with uh, everything you brothers are saying. It's it's definitely a culture shift. It's definitely being careful how you kind of step on those uh, fringes of those kind of uh, clergy because how you do it is um, – it takes time and you have to see how it's a, a collaborative effort and, and, and the means with that. And I, I agree with all you brothers on what you're saying. And um, my hopes is that as time goes forward, that we have these conversations where therapists, because this is the ownership that we have to take as mental health professionals. I don't know how much we've done to step into those spaces either to have these conversations and to meet people. How much have we invited them? And that's where, like, continuing to have these divisions between mind, body, and soul and in our, in our particular practices, it doesn't help because we stay in these silos. And we'll say that that's the church over here. This is mental health over there. My hopes, especially as chief clinical officer, just being a, a black male therapist with spirituality, is to make sure that when I have the opportunity to bring these leaders, to bring other individuals, that we come together. And we start strategizing. It's not going to be perfect. It may be ugly how we get there. But at the same time, the ownership is really in a lot of different places. And I don't know how much we've really done on all sides to sit down. Um, And I think some people are just afraid to make it happen for many reasons. But I will say that it has to start somewhere and doing a better job at having conversations. And also, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I always say, you know, not just the – you know, we know that the professionals in that realm can help us also, but the people who mm-hmm. need to receive that treatment, you know, need to kind mm-hmm. of come out of their defensiveness and realize that, hey, I mm-hmm. might have a situation going on with me, you know, instead of everybody using a universal word, oh, you trying to call me crazy? You know, it's not right. somebody trying to call you crazy, but you may have an issue. You know, that we do have professionals who can help you deal with that and lead you in the right way to, you know, overcome it. But sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, especially say being black, I've heard in my own family, you know, people <laughs> feel like you're trying to call them crazy. 
and they get really highly offended. Right, right, right. And uh, and I and I and I like what you're saying. Like sometimes we go to the the extreme or the harsh word of saying crazy, and we don't find that alternatives to trying to really explain what's happening. Crazy is like that catch-all, and then it's almost a shaming or a guilting process in doing so. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and the reality is that you know we all go through. Uh, issues. We all go through emotional problems. We all experience that because that's a part of what we have in our bodies. It's what, mm-hmm. if we talk about the creator of God, God created these emotions. He created us to go through these situations, and sometimes it gets out of tune. And I think that's really about us finding out how to use our language towards each other and, uh, and better support each other and uplift each other in ways that just we can do better at that. I agree. All right. Good work. Yeah, and do you, you know, just going back to the insurance piece, I just wanted to touch on that before we close here. Do you find that insurance companies are happier to subsidize costs for mental health treatment compared to the days of old? Uh, Actually, yeah. Um, You know, at one time there was a a big challenge when we think about um, particularly how they were going to support certain diagnosis um, and, and so the paneling and the process for insurance companies and these major payers, they've really opened up on what they look at diagnosis. And, and, and that definitely doesn't have to just be schizophrenia or depression. There's a lot more on what they're providing reimbursement for insurance for. And so I, I guess it was likened to what we were saying about how people feel like, oh, I'm not crazy. You know, you don't have to see me as a therapist for something that's severe. You know, you can come in and talk to me. And it doesn't have to be this major diagnosis for me to still bill your insurance provider, if that makes sense. So in, when I work with some people in my sessions, I may never get to the point I'm saying, this is depression. I'm going to bill your insurance provider and say it's depression so that it's on record, if that makes sense. I, if it is depression, then that's what it is. But if it's not and it's something else and it's an adjustment or something else is in your life, I'm not going to just bill the insurance provider and say it's depression to get the money. Does that make sense? And so we've had to Mm -hmm. shift away from that because there's a lot of labeling and stigmatizing and sending in these hard, fast kind of clinical diagnosis for the billing when somebody didn't fit that. And then so it's all in the system. But the providers have gotten away from that. They're trying to do better. There's still a lot of lobbying and shifting. But I will say that a lot more people have to think about using that insurance because you pay into it, you need to get something out of it when you need it. Oh, yeah. hmm Yeah, last question for you, Tony. And then after this, after you respond to this question, I want to get into, you know, explain the app a little bit, the Henry Health app that's coming. Oh, um, perfect. But this, this, yeah, this is the final question for the evening. Over the next 10 years, if you could predict the future, do you think the stigma with black men getting mental health treatment will decrease significantly or only slightly? Do you think the, oh. the stigma with black men getting mental health treatment would decrease significantly or only slightly? That is the question. Oh, significantly. And um, a couple of reasons. One, because this generation of black men that are coming up, particularly millennials, um, those that are dealing with tech, those that are dealing with, um, I guess, just looking at society a little differently, um, they are open to this idea, even if it's through text therapy, if it's teletherapy, there's, there's the shift. But when we think about in general, like 
100% of black men, what's really going on with us. I think it takes a radio show like this. It takes um, a blog talk show. I think it takes um, what Lorenzo's project, the Confession Project, it, it takes those entities aggressively dealing with it. And this wasn't happening five years ago, per se. It wasn't happening, per se, 10 years ago. So you have a lot of people shifting their ideas on how to address it, um, particularly Henry Health, particularly um, there's a couple other projects. And I think we're aggressively trying to deal with it on a company front in different places. I think in the past it was just trying to deal with it from one projection, like trying to go at it from one angle. I think over the next 10 years there will be different angles on how to deal with it. And I think if we give ourselves some leg room or permission on what we're saying we're shifting and how we're shifting it, I think we'll see a better level of success. I think if we're trying to measure it by saying, like, brothers are in therapy or brothers are doing this, then we may be cutting ourselves short. I think if we give ourselves credit where we're having these bigger conversations, we're doing more, I think that's where we'll say, you know what, we actually made progress. We're not trying to look for this particular style of doing things. We're doing it our way, and we're progressing. Mm, that's good. Well, speaking of doing it our way, um, in the final minutes here, again, uh-huh. The lines disconnect at 1130. I ain't got no control over it. Don't shoot (laughs) the messenger. But um, tell us, you know, about the, you know, y'all working on the Henry Health app. Is it going to be free? You know, just tell us more about, you know, how's it going to work? What's the anticipated release date? You know, all of that good stuff for our listeners. And then finally, tell us, you know, how they can reach out to Henry Health and you and, social media, whatever you want to say. you got three minutes, bro. The floor is yours. Okay. All right. So www.henry-health.com. Please go to the website to get more information. All our information from the Kevin CEO down to the chief clinical officer. We're on that webpage. We're open for pilot service within the D.C., uh, Maryland, Virginia area if you want to get services. Now, particularly with the app, we are in development with a black tech firm here in the D.C. metro area. The rolling out phases will be November, December from what we're anticipating. The app will provide self-care support and mental health services, which includes meditation. It includes um, podcasts. It includes um, opportunities to do journaling. It includes telehealth therapy. It includes um, we're looking at doing nutrition. So this is kind of like that one-stop shop that people have been looking for. You don't need multiple apps. It'll be in Henry Health. So we have it on iOS is going to be the initial first launch, and then we're going to go into the Android system. Uh, when we think about this app, so there's going to be different levels of membership or different levels of engagement on the app. So you'll have the opportunity, if I'm correct initially, to use particular services, and that's possibly without a cost, and then there's the membership. But my main thing is you know, to talk to us, to engage with us, access questions, to um, have us come to events. That is something where you can already engage us now, and uh, we're free to talk, um, so that's no cost. And then if you have more questions, always feel free to reach out, again, at www.henry-health.com. You'll find all our information, and I can give you more information about it. Yeah, and the app, once you all get it up and running, I'm assuming that will be able to connect with um, insurers as well, you know, to build through the insurance, have all of that tied in there. Y'all working on that? Uh, that's a good question. So, yeah, so since we're already connected to these major payers, um, our goal is to go across the nation connecting with major payers in local districts, states, 
so that uh, brothers um, can use their insurance if needed to, if not out of pocket. And then we're looking at a strong membership model that will probably um, take all that away and allow for brothers to have teletherapy access on the side at any time. Um, but that's a future rollout. But our goal is to get there. Yeah. You said podcast. At least you already got I hope you all ain't trying to create a new one because you already got a link to the podcast. Married Men on Talk Show have been doing it for 11 years. So just, just a plug. Just a plug. Just a plug. Just a plug. We appreciate yeah, no everything problem, that you guys have job. done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to say thank you for yeah. having me on, man. I appreciate you guys. Yeah, thank you for coming through. In 30 seconds, guys, y'all got anything for Tony? Y'all got anybody got a question? You know, if not, thank uh, you for again, your y'all time. taking providers? Y'all got y'all taking providers? Uh, therapist? Yes, my, actually my yeah, wife yeah, is yeah, a yeah, no, yeah, uh, yeah. psychologist as well as her partner. They have a business yeah, here yeah. In, uh, in Southern Maryland. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we're taking on providers, so at some point we'll do more rollout, but if you want to send her out to me or give me your information at some point, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll pass it along to you. I I know who it is, so I'll pass it along to you, uh, Tony. (laughs) I'll get that information to you, and uh, y'all be easy. My time is up. All right, God bless y'all. All All right, now. All right, guys.